0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Once again, we are in Philippians chapter 1, looking at verses 19 and following, really focusing in on 19 and 20 this morning, which sets the table for verse 21. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. And we'll talk about the conclusion that he comes to um, the verse 21 begins with a four uh, the the very strong way of explanation or conclusion that he's coming to that really synthesizes verses 19 and 20 and then he says to me for my perspective in my faith and my faith conviction to me and it's a very subjective personal conviction that he comes to that he operates under and uh, one that we all should be coming to, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And he describes that from his own perspective so that the Philippian believers also will come to share that same viewpoint as well, that they also can come to the same perspective that to live as Christ and to die as gain. So that matters of life and death are secondary to uh, matters of obedience or disobedience, faithfulness or faithlessness in uh, in the plan of God. All right. But to set the table for that, we've got to make sure we're solid here on verses 19 and 20, and uh, that's where we're going to pick up uh, from where we left it Wednesday night. Uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment to assure that we're filled with the spirit, that we, are, uh, we have no unconfessed sin. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before You this morning thankful for Your truth, thankful for the blessings we have to assemble together, the freedom that we have in this nation, Father. Uh, we can meet in a public building with a sign out front and we're not in fear of uh, the government coming in and shutting us down or putting us in jail. Father, we uh, thank You for the freedoms we have uh, to assemble, to, show our, to uh, study to show ourselves approved, uh, the freedom to not be here this morning. Father, I just thank you for that as well and uh, give you the praise and glory that uh, under positive volition, believers hungry for truth have uh, assembled so as to be fed. And I thank you for that, Father. So bless our time this morning. Open the eyes of our understanding. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so uh, we're dealing with this third and final section I've given you so many times the outline to this I don 't think I'll do it again, uh, verses three through eleven verses twelve through eighteen and now finally verses nineteen through thirty. This is uh, the section that is the application both for Paul himself and for the Philippians to live as Christ and to die as gain. You adopt that as a philosophy, adopt that as a mindset moving forward, and everything else takes care of itself that uh, matters of life and death. You just leave that in the Lord's hands. You're going to stay faithful, running with endurance the race that is set before you. And so um, we're talking about now rejoicing. This is the first point of study. Paul's present rejoicing assures him of a future rejoicing. And the verb is used twice in verse 18. He says, "...in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice." And this serves as the bridge from the paragraph before to the paragraph that follows. We have the present tense rejoicing, that's the first one. In this I do now presently rejoice. And then he says yes, and I will rejoice. And he turns into a future tense. And so the present tense of what he is doing now uh, leads him to boast about or to celebrate to anticipate what he is going to do when uh, in the future. And, and so that's why we switch from the present tense to the future tense. And it is in this. Don't lose track of the in this in verse 18 because uh, it comes back again in verse 19. We, and we want to be clear on this. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. And so that this that we're talking about is his circumstances, is the, uh, the preaching that's going on, some for right reasons and some for wrong reasons, trying to cause him distress. And that's the this that he's able to rejoice in, presently and in the future. This will turn out for my salvation, my deliverance, through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And so we discuss this here in the subpoints. Paul anticipates a salvation That's a soteria. And, um, by the way, a very sharp-eyed pastoral student, uh, found, uh, Philippians 1.19 in some old notes, uh, listed. In fact, it was in the 1st Corinthians series under chapter, uh, 1st Corinthians chapter 15, where uh, on that occasion we had outlined the four different ways that salvation is used in the Bible. Phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four salvation. We taught that again on Wednesday. Um, and, um, I taught this verse differently back in the First Corinthians series. I viewed this as a deliverance from danger, and I don't think it is physical danger any longer. I think it's focusing on that disappointment in the, uh, the shame. Uh, I think verse 20 defines the salvation in verse 19 where he says, "...according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything." And that's what he's being saved from. That's in context, that's the salvation of verse 19, is not being put to shame in verse 20. And it has nothing to do with danger, has nothing to do with losing his life, because we see whether by life or by death in verse 20, he's going to be saved in either circumstance. And so you can't make that statement uh, if if the salvation is a, is a type 4 salvation where you're being rescued from physical harm. Because if he's put to death here... He's not being rescued from physical harm, and so you can't conclude that this is a type four salvation if he says, "Whether I live or I die, I'm still going to be saved." So, um, anyway, so uh, if you have some of those old notes from First Corinthians chapter fifteen or First Corinthians series notebook, uh, and you spot that Philippians one uh, one nineteen references in there, go ahead and just cross that off and uh, and take it from there. All right, so. Uh, we dealt with this here under point A. This is a salvation that is not contingent with his life or his death. Either way, whether the circumstances result in his being released and he gets to continue living or whether the outcome of his trial and his imprisonment means that they execute him, that they throw him to the lions, all right? Uh, and, and they throw him to the lions and the lions eat him, okay? <laughs> because he was thrown to the lions at least once and uh, wrote about it later whereby uh, the, the lions did not eat him in uh, in that episode. So, under point B, Paul knows that the Philippians' corporate prayer support will sustain him. And the, the uh, nature of this, it is through your prayers. Your prayers, plural. So your, plural, prayers, plural. It is a corporate prayer endeavor on the part of the saints in Philippi that are lifting up prayers for him. Uh, having received uh, this letter and, and, and engaging in these prayers, and so uh, we understand this this prayer support becomes the logistical supply through the spirit of jesus christ and that's to me that 's powerful that's not that 's not dollars that are sent that 's not drachmas that are sent that 's not money the logistical grace supply is the prayer it is the the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace it's that that supply that binds members of the body of Christ closer together okay in the body that, that those are joints and ligaments that that put body parts together in uh, the new testament it's prayer it's praying with one another and for one another that supplies that provision and so I won't take you through it again, but Ephesians 4.16 and Colossians 2.19 if, uh, if you haven't learned what those verses are all about and connected here to the provision that's mentioned in verse 19 then uh, please do so and start to appreciate what a blessing it is to come together with brothers and sisters and pray in, uh, in a local assembly. Which brings us now to the expectation and the hope. Paul's expectation and hope for this salvation is to not be put to shame in anything. And it's a little bit of a negative, but that's okay. We can have a positive anticipation of a negative thing. We can have a positive expectation of something not happening. That's valid. We get that. We do it all the time. Okay? We have a positive hope, a positive expectation for something that we want to not happen and uh, that's that's called life we do that all the time and uh, we have uh, biblical examples of it we have uh, modern day illustrations of that and that's what we see here according to my earnest expectation and hope that i will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness christ will even now as always be exalted in my body whether by life or by death and so this is his expectation and hope uh, the verb for shame is iskuno, and we spent Wednesday night looking at these verses here to be put to shame. Uh, we don't want to be put to shame, uh, either uh, putting ourselves to shame or putting Christ to shame. That's uh, the, the sadness of believers that fail in their ministry, believers that shrink away from Him and shame at His coming, for example. Uh, had some comment on that as well when class was over and talking about it after class Wednesday night, 1 John 2.28. There are believers at the rapture of the church that will not be happy at the rapture of the church. It talks about shrinking away from Him, from Jesus, in shame at His coming. And for members of the body of Christ to cringe or to shrink back or to have that, that moment of of regret, that's not a good thing. Okay, Now, having said all that, we can relax a little bit in the sense that um, that moment of shame only lasts for the twinkling of an eye, right? It's, it's going to be over very quickly because we're going to be transformed. Every believer that's on the planet today, even the biggest loser in the church age, right? The biggest rebel um, who's been walking in darkness for years, who's been in under reversionism, um, he's still saved. And so when that trumpet sounds, He's part of the broad and He's going to be snatched up into the clouds. And that's why when we read it there in First John 2.28, shrinking away from Him in shame at His coming, I think is going to be more common than not. And yet, uh, it'll be over like that in the twinkling of an eye. Because when when we all cast off our bodies, what does that mean? We're casting off the sin that infests these bodies, and so we're going to be putting on the new bodies. We're going to be transformed just like that to be snatched up into the air, to meet to the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. This uh, present body that we have wouldn't survive too well being uh, launched up into the into the stratosphere. Okay, we'd get very cold very quickly, assuming we survived the friction of the acceleration to get us up there right? Plus smashing through the ceilings and whatever else is above us, okay? This physical mortal body would not do too well uh, to be raptured without the twinkling of an eye transformation that takes place. And then once we are glorified into the body as His body then, uh, ceilings and walls and doors and closed things, that's not a problem anymore. Jesus didn't have any problem with that when He popped into the upper room and scared the disciples there on that Easter Sunday. Anyway, So when we're talking about shame, this is, uh, this is what we have. And a couple of things, too, that I illustrated with that I hope we recognize. Shame can be a good thing. There is a sanctified shame, but then there's the satanic shame. And we want to be clear on that. It's like fear of the Lord, a godly fear versus a sinful fear. Uh, I think that there is a shame because there is a sorrow that leads to repentance, and that's a good thing. And if, if we're responding to God's discipline, if we're responding to God's sorrow, then I would I would support that as being a valid, sanctified, righteous shame principle that God will use as a part of waking us up. Um but then of course then there's the other kind of shame and, and Satan will manipulate that all day long. And he will use guilt as a as a power play. He will manipulate emotions based upon shame. And and believers will make terrible decisions simply because they're they're terrified that Somebody will find out something that they don't want them to know, <laughs> you know And if somebody finds out something, well then that's, that's it's just un- unacceptable, and they, they can't live with themselves. And, and so that fear of exposure, that fear, that shame, Satan will use uh, on a very manipulative basis. All right. Anyway, all of that then gets us ready now to tackle a couple of principles then, uh, the first of which we'll, we're going to struggle with: earnest expectation. Uh, because there's only two uses of that in the Bible, and there's really only two uses of that anywhere. It's like a term that Paul invented, kind of throwing prepositions at words and combining things. Anyway, we can spend a little bit of time on it. I don't think we'll spend a whole lot of time on it. But our earnest expectation is a word that we really don't know what it means, uh, other than the fact that we... We have similar words, and we know what those words mean. And we have the way that is linked to hope, and, and we know what hope means, because hope is used a lot. Um, so the fact that it is linked to hope the way that it is here, according to my uh, apa kara according to my apa my kara and hope. So whatever apa kara is, is, it's parallel to hope in this context. And uh, it's paralleled to hope as well in Romans eight, when it's used there also. Uh this is an earnest expectation. A P O K R A D O K I A. And uh so it's got an apple prefix on top of a compound verb, Kara, which means head. It's like a poetic form of of um of kephale. It's uh used mostly in, in poetic uh greek um it's it's it, there's there's cognate forms of kara that include crani like where we get cranium where we get uh through the latin we get some other head words that speak of crane um anyway it's uh and then docia for thinking and for receiving and uh, almost in a welcoming application. So it's uh, the, the etymology of the parts kind of helps us, not really. Um, take the apple off and we get a little bit more help because just charadekia and charadekeo is a verb. We have some secular usages of that, some subjugent usages of that. But throwing an apple prefix in front of it, that was probably Paul. Paul just probably was just Expanding and he's done that with a few other verbs as well. Uh, it was maybe even a quirk of paul's um rhetoric of his speaking style and his writing style uh to uh to do such a thing so in any event, we see it here um, according to my and it's translated earnest expectation I'm fine with that I think it's a uh both words are combined in the Apocardikia. So earnest expectation, intense expectation, uh, and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything. So that's where it's linked. The other use is in Romans 8.19 where it talks about creation. And creation has an earnest expectation. Because creation is longing to be freed from the curse. Uh, if you If you think that you are irritated by Weeds and uh, fire ants and hornets. I got sw- swan, uh, stung by a wasp the other day, and you know, I mean, yeah, really, you know, and everything that we go through in the, in the fallen earth. Okay, you know, and I mean, look at me. We got hurricanes and we got other things. We got, you know, Puerto Rico's devastated, and I'm complaining about a wasp. But we all are exposed to a uh, to this fallen creation in one way or another um, whatever the case may be but if we're groaning think about creation itself as groaning and uh, how the the creation wasn't designed for this and yet it's subject to this because of the sin of Adam. So in Romans 8.18 it says for I consider that the sufferings of this present time the now are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So a day is coming, then, someday soon. And so there's the now in contrast with someday, hopefully soon. You see the contrast on that? And and this is what we're dealing with in Philippians because there's the now compared with a day, someday, soon. And there's also a now compared with days in the past. And Paul uh, will deal with that when Paul talks about the now, that he doesn't want to put God to shame now. Um, And then it says in verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation, the anxious longing for the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And so we have the apokaradakia of this present time of, uh, of the creation is waiting eagerly, there's a verb, for the revealing of the sons of God. And so that, that verse kind of helps. We have the apakaradakia Apok- uh, noun, which is doing something. And by virtue of what it's doing, we see its, uh, its connection there. Anyway, so it's a positive thing waiting eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the uh, creation was subjected to futility. Okay? And that's what happened to this earth. This earth is presently under Adam's curse, not willingly. The, the the creation didn't sin, <laughs> okay? The the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil didn't pick itself and didn't eat itself. And, uh, you know, the, the tree didn't sin. Creation didn't sin. Adam sinned. And Adam was the steward of this creation, all right? So that's why this creation was cursed, subjected, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And so there too we have the combination of the the anxious waiting and the hope, the earnest expectation and the hope that creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You know when the millennial kingdom uh, arrives there's no more curse, okay? Not on the environment. Not on the environment. Now we'll still have unbelievers and we'll still have sin but on the environment, on the animals. The lion will lie down with the lamb and, and uh, the thorns and the thistles are done. Okay? The fire ants are done. The stinging wasps are done in the millennial kingdom. And then, of course, the, the last of the curse is done in the new heavens and new earth. There won't be any more unbelievers, won't be any more sin once uh, all things are made new. Anyway, the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And so that labor is just getting harder and harder and harder and harder. If you've given birth, you know what this is like. All right. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan "...within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body." All right, so however we want to handle the Apokaradikia, clearly, uh, whatever the dictionaries tell you it means, just look at the context, Right? And this is like when you're learning how to read as a little kid. There's a word in that sentence. You don't know what that word is, but you read all the other words around in the sentence and it's pretty obvious what that word's dealing with. And so in context, you can fit it in and you don't have any problem with it. That's what we're doing here, okay? That's what we're doing here. Anyway, if you're curious and you want to do some more on that, we can. Let me just show you one of the lexicons and then we'll move on past that. Um, if you have logos you can just right click earnest or you can right click expectation either one doesn't matter and you'll see the apocardikia right there and bring up a word study on it it'll be a very short word study because there's only two uses and there they are it's a pretty simple color wheel (laughs) okay you got anxious longing and you got earnest expectation those are the two uses there no septuagent usages you have the root, which gives you some interesting etymology cognates and some uh, forms there, including the verb "decamai," the verb "dao" to think or to suppose um, cranion for skull." <laughs> so if you're supposing something, if you've got this crazy idea rattling around in your cranium <laughs> all right, then you might have an earnest expectation. I don't know, sometimes the etymology falls short. There is a neat, um, let's see, of all these lexicons, the only ones I'm going to share probably would be this one maybe. um, and various literature on that. The substantive occurs only twice in the New Testament. We've seen them both, Romans 8.19, Philippians 1.20. It is not attested in non-Christian sources. However, the verb apokaradakeo, to await, it is attested. Polybius and the, the aquila recension of the Septuagint. By the way, the aquila recension is after the New Testament, probably influenced by Paul, influenced by the New Testament. Earlier versions of the Septuagint don't have the verb. Uh, more widely known in the simple form of kara dekao so what happened to the apo? More widely known in the simple form of kara de keo, it's used of waiting for the outcome of a war. Herodotus uses it like that. Uh, against the Aquila subtuagent uses it like that in Psalm 129. Um, kara de occurs likewise in Aquila's version of Psalm 38 and Proverbs ten twenty eight, both times for the Hebrew "tocheleth." as an expression for the steadfast waiting of the faithful for God. It, it also, by the way, is a manuscript variant in Philippians one twenty. Um, our, our verse this morning uh, has a textual variant of uh, taking the apo off, of just charadekia. Uh, All right. It is likely that Paul himself coined the noun, apokaradekia, formed from the preposition apo, the substantive kara, head, and the verb decamai, uh, to accept, which are deri- uh, derivatives of decao watch closely, or pros deca'o to expect. Already in the early church, Pauline exegesis was unable to arrive at a uniform interpretation of this noun. So the word study we're doing this morning, they've been doing it for a long, long time. Going back to the second century and the third century, the church fathers discussed this interesting noun that Paul appears to have made up and put in the Bible. So uh, Theodore of Mopsuestia, commenting on Romans 8.19, he explains uh, the kardakeo by means of Pizzo, but he takes the apo kardakeo negatively by means of ap Pizzo as lose hope. If you put the apo prefix in front of Pizzo, then instead of hoping something, you're losing hope. And so Theodore of Mopsuestia, uh, 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 this guy, Theodore of Mopsuestia, he was suspecting that maybe we do the same thing with Apo. We're going to reverse the earnest expectation, but that doesn't make any sense when you see that it's parallel to hope. It's parallel to Pizzo. So um, anyway, Theodore's kind of out there. Um, the majority of the fathers understand Apokaradokia as an intensification of Karadokia. Apo can be an intensifier, oftentimes as like Epi. And uh, I think most of the church fathers took it that way and took it well. So thus is an especially strong expression of expectation. So it's almost like today. What do we do today? Today, you and I, we can put mega in front of anything, right? We have a pastor and then we have a mega pastor. Ooh, okay? We have a church or we have a mega church. And nowadays, even mega is too small. So I want to become the first gigapastor that we can... No, I'm... pleased, Lord, no. okay? not a giga-pastor of a giga-church, okay? But you get the point that language is so flexible that if you, you can do that, throw a, throw a preposition on there or a suffix or something like that, and your audience will get where you're going with that, all right? Maybe people 2,000 years later will struggle, uh, but the people that are reading or listening to you that know you, that know your mind, know your thinking, they're going to do just well with that. All right. Etymologically, apocardikeia is frequently explained as a metaphor with the basic meaning of stretching forth the head. You know, because of the car root of the head, if you're stretching the head out, then you are so eager in looking for what you're looking for that your neck is totally stretched out because that's how hard you're looking for something. Okay? All right. But this explanation is also disputed. It cannot be made to agree with either the formation or uses of the word in a completely satisfying way. And he quotes Frisk and he quotes Balls. Interestingly enough, he's quoting himself there because he's the author of this. Of this uh, but he's quoting himself from an earlier work of uh, what we're reading. Anyway, Luther uh, deals with it and others deal with it there. Okay. For the interpretation of both Pauline uses, the context is decisive. And we have no question. And I would agree. You see how it's used, you see the words around there, and, and it's simple. Paul speaks of his eager expectation and his hope, his elpis, that he will not be brought to shame by anything, not even by a rival proclamation of Christ, occasioned by his imprisonment and directed against him. That's the this, the, the pronoun this, that uh, we keep coming back to. Uh, Whereas Elpis in this context, as always in Paul, articulates an element of trust in God, the accompanying Apocardokia emphasizes rather the vehement and unshakable expectation which constitutes the emotional dimension of the hope. All right, then Romans 8.19 views the creation in a tension between, on the one hand, meaninglessness and transitoriness, and on the other, the freedom which consists in the glorification of the children of God. And so here also, Apocartica and Elpis uh, can designate two aspects of the theological statement. All right, and see, it's Balls there is the author of this article. So, anxious longing. The only other th- thing I'll read is from Moulton and Milligan. Moulton and Milligan. Here's a fun guy. This this uh, lexicon, vocabulary of the Greek New Testament according to the papyri. And uh, this came about in the 20th century and really transformed Greek New Testament studies. Prior to Moulton Milligan, prior to examining the papyri, um, Koine Greek was, was not understood as well. It was mocked, it was ridiculed, it was dismissed, it was really kind of diminished. It was viewed by the classicists as so inferior to Homer and the poetic Greek and the, the Attic Greek and all of the, the great l- Greek literature of the day. What they didn't understand is that Koine was the language of the street. It was used uh, by the common man. It was used uh, a- until these these studies started to put it together and they started to see uh, shipping labels. They started to see uh, wills. they started to see personal correspondence between friends, even graffiti that was written on uh, the you know building walls and, and things like that. Uh, some of it is very vulgar as graffiti tends to be, um, and yet that is the Koine dialect of the, of the Greek language. And once more and more of those expressions started to be seen for what they truly were, then New Testament Koine Greek uh, truly um, entered into its own, uh, its own appropriate study. So anyway, Moulton and Milligan track all of the graffiti uh, that has been found by archaeologists and all of the papyri that has been discovered and all the scraps of paper that were dug out of trash heaps and uh, started to create catalogs of of expressions there, including Apocardicea. And um, highlighting the verb, Apocardiceo, uh, is used by Polybius, and there's a reference there. Um, Compare the very interesting 6th century papyrus from Aphrodite in Egypt. And it's cited by Adolf Deisman in his Light from the Ancient East. Uh, Marvelous book, by the way, we have it in the church library has has a volume with text and a volume with pictures, and you know I look at the pictures mostly, but you can also go to the text and see the text as well um, anyway, somebody named Aphrodite in Egypt um, in the sixth century, in which certain oppressed peasants petition a high official whose perusia who's coming uh they have been expecting, assuring him that they await him that's Ek decumen, they await him. Uh, and then here's our term as it's used in this sentence. Hoion, hoi ex, haidu, that's our word, tain tata tu Christu, ayanu theu, all right, Perusian. As those in Hades watch eagerly for the Perusia of Christ, the everlasting God. All right. And so there it is. And uh, some whoever this Aphrodite person was and whatever letter she was writing or whatever scrap of paper papyrus was written on, um, the peasants uh, were, were anxious for this government official to show up. And they were as anxious as, it says, the inhabitants of Hades are watching eagerly for the peruse of Christ. Anyway, that's... Uh, interesting to me. While the perfectivized verb is well supported in literary koine, the noun is so far peculiar to Paul and may quite possibly have been his own formation. Compare what we have said above under apic and Apodeusis. okay? Two other cases where we don't know anything about those terms having appos stuck in front of them. All right, And they appear to be Paul's quirks. They appear to be Paul throwing an apo there in Apic Decami and Apic Deuces. And so three different instances here that Moulton and Milligan say uh, likely Paul coined this. So Paul was fond of throwing. All of that is a kind of a long side trip to say Paul was uh, very fond of throwing apo prefixes in front of verbs that were otherwise known. All right. According to our earnest expectation and hope. And hope. Now with elpis, 53 uses and no questions about the noun elpis, the verb elpizo. Understand the positive anticipation that is exclusively uh, found throughout the Septuagint, throughout the New Testament. When the Bible uses elpis, it is hope on a positive anticipation basis. There is, uh, and it's, so it's a great tandem with earnest expectation. This is not a hope that you know there's no chance in Hades that it's going to happen, okay? You know, or I hope I win the lottery, or I hope that that whatever. I hope that the Mariners win the World Series or whatever. They're not even in the playoffs, so that's not likely to happen. I hope, uh, you know, we can, we can express hope in a very um, lost cause kind of hopeless way. You know why, why do we do that? I don't know. That's curious to me. But uh, that usage that, that, that we're accustomed to of people using hope for something that is just so out there it's not even possible. Um, the Bible doesn't use it that way. Not once. Ever. Elpis is a positive anticipation. It is a hope whereby you have every expectation, every anticipation. You know that it's coming. In fact, it's definitive of who we are as Christians you and I are saved, we stand in a living hope. That is the the nature of what it means to be saved. And so every hope that we have, if it's grounded in the Word of God, then it has to happen. There's no reason for it not to happen. God said it's going to happen. And so we talk about the hope of eternal life. See, well, you know, experientially, we have it now but we're still in mortal bodies and we're still creatures of time bound by time. We're still in a physical existence. And so there could be days that we might question or we might doubt or we might fear or we might get scared. And then we have to be reminded, wait a minute, we live in the hope of eternal life. And this body, if this body is killed, I still live. He who lives and believes in me will never die. So... Anyway, that's the aspect on hope. And I hope we get this. Our hope. The noun is Elpis, E-L-P-I-S. It's uh number sixteen eighty in the Strong's Concordance. It's number fifty, it has fifty-three New Testament uses. Uh Lewis and Bill are going to be a while before they get there because the, the is ending, the, the feminine is ending nouns are not the easiest ones to deal with, so they don't show up early in your first-year Greek grammar. Um In any event, Um, we'll look at these. Notice how many of them are Pauline, Uh, but not all of them. Uh, Not only an emphasis for Paul, but also taught by Hebrews, Peter, and John. And as we look at each, I'm going to kind of give you a spoiler up front. As we look at each of these verses, notice the context for hope is a positional truth in Christ, and often it's manifest experientially through the body of Christ. Alright? And you'll see that I think as we work through these examples. What do I mean? That it is a positional truth in Christ. We have hope because we are saved. We are in Christ. And uh, you ever try to you know, encourage somebody that's not a believer when they lose a loved one? Ever try to preach a, a funeral for an unbeliever? Or attend a funeral for an unbeliever? There's no hope there. There can't be any hope there. What do you say? You know for a fact they rejected the gospel. And so as we look at these Elpis verses, understand we're going to see a context that's going to be centered in a position in Christ. And we're going to see uh, often, not in every case, but often um, this hope is going to be manifest with other brothers and sisters together. With the body of Christ that are walking together, serving together, loving together, hoping together. That we're not alone in this hope. That we have, we're positionally in Christ and experientially we're growing with a body of saints with brothers and sisters that share the same hope we have. So that's what I mean by that. So the context for hope is a positional truth in Christ and often manifest experientially through the body of Christ. Not only is this an emphasis for Paul, and you see that, Romans 5, Romans 8, Romans 12, Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 13, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, all of those are Pauline references. So clearly, you know, uh, hope was a big deal to the Apostle Paul. But also taught by Hebrews chapter 6, chapter 10, Peter 1 Peter chapter 1, chapter 3, and uh, John. 1 John three three. Alright, so that's the aspect there. And Paul has this hope. His earnest expectation and hope that he will not be put to shame. That's what we're studying this morning. Now, to get the full flavor on Elpis, let's look at these other ones starting in Romans 5. Starting with why we are such creatures of hope. Believers ought to be the most hopeful people you'll ever meet. They ought to be the only hopeful people you ever meet. Okay, Believers under teaching. And what's sad to me is believers who lose hope. It's like believers who lose faith. We have faith, hope, and love. These ought to be our operational functions. And so when a believer's not walking in love, when a believer's not walking by faith, when a believer's not walking in hope, uh, I think they're, they're losing those are the, the tripods that we should be, uh, the, the legs of the tripod we should be sitting on. And uh, how sad is it when a, when a Christian loses hope? So Romans 5 Therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've had chapter uh, 4 dealing with justification by faith. What's the outcome? Right? In Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but in Romans 4, we're justified by faith. Praise God. So having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been reconciled. We are now in peace. We have this fellowship with our Father. Through whom also, as if that's not enough, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. There is now a realm of grace in which we stand. We are objects of His grace. We stand positionally in, a, in an estate. That's why I say it's a positional truth in Christ called this grace in which we stand. And you'll notice because we stand in this grace, what does that mean? and we exult in hope of the glory of God. That's what it means. That means we're not afraid of what's coming up. We're not afraid of the future. We're, uh, we're exulting in hope. What's in the future is glory. If there's some conflict along the way, so be it. If there's some suffering along the way, hey who cares? The momentary light affliction is not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. And that's our hope. And not only this, we also exult in our tribulations. So we're exulting in hope, we're exulting in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And so we, we see how this gets built. We see how this gets intensified. And you can have hope and then you can have more hope. And it just feeds, and it feeds, and it feeds. It's like Paul. He was rejoicing, so he knew that it was going to bring about more rejoicing. He has a present rejoicing. He anticipated a future rejoicing. We stand and we exult in hope. We know it's going to produce an even greater hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so we, th- we have every expectation of what's coming up. Every, uh, every thrill for what's coming up when that trumpet sounds and what follows on the other side of the trumpet. And what, we have, what we're going through now, just it doesn't discourage us, it encourages us. More testing? Great. Because God promised that it was going to happen. It's necessary. The more tribulations we go through, great. Thank you, Lord, for counting me worthy to suffer according to the image of Christ. Letting me be more Christ-like. Because to the degree that I suffer with Him, so too... I get to rule with Him. And and you, I, do you want more reward? I want more reward. It means more suffering. It means more affliction, more tribulation. Okay? Great. And so verse 2, verse 4, verse 5, and we have hope in, uh, in all these verses. For the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And there we have it. Over to chapter 8. We've already seen this. Verse 20 and verse 24. Talking about the creation, we were here just a little bit ago. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Okay, Notice creation's not waiting for the tree huggers. Creation's not waiting for the whale kissers, you know, all the dirt-worshipping tree huggers that are out there trying to save the creation. No, creation's waiting for us in our glorified state coming back with Christ to reign That's what creation's waiting for. Because of Him who subjected it in hope. When the Father subjected it, it's the same hope we have. You get down to um, verse 23, not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. That's the last bit that's waiting. It's the last piece of the puzzle. Our soul has been saved, our human spirit has been made alive, but our body nothing's happened to our body. We're waiting for a rapture to to transform our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. See the context there. Now that's a different verb than what we see for waiting eagerly, but I think the context shows it is the same application, right? We're waiting eagerly for what we're hoping for. And that's the Father's blessing to, uh, to do. Alright. You know some things, and we're, we're just so impatient, we're so finite, and we want everything now. And yet the Father knows that now is too soon. The rapture can't come now. Oh, I wish that it would, but it's too soon. The bride's not yet complete. There's a member of the bride that's not yet saved. See, so can't happen until the, the bride is complete. Chapter uh, 15. No, chapter 12. And I think in all of these we're seeing, what are we seeing? We're seeing positional truth, being saved in Christ, and that's a, that's a sphere, that's a realm that we stand in, and that realm contains hope. Likewise in chapter 12, same thing rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. This is a part of what it means to uh, be a a church-age believer. And in this context, by the way, you'll notice from verses 9 and following, we're operating in a flock. We're operating in a local assembly, serving one another. And so um, we see this, okay? Um, Verse 3 says, through the grace given to me Uh, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. We have many members in one body. All members do not have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And that's why we have gifts. And that's why we do what we do. We're serving one another. Whatever your gift is, in giving and serving and exhorting and teaching and leading, whatever we're doing, your gift isn't for you. Your gift is for everybody else in this church. Your gift is for the body of Christ. And so then the application for all of us is verse 9 and following. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in Philadelphia, brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord rejoicing in hope. So there it is. It's our position in Christ and it's expressed in the body of Christ. It's manifest experientially through the body of Christ. Rejoicing in hope. Say, well, I can't rejoice in what I'm going through. Well, why not? Do you have a hope for what this is producing? Does this test provide you a hope for what the outcome of this test is going to be, the glory of Jesus Christ? I get it that the test is not pleasant. I accept that. My tests aren't pleasant either. If I had my brothers, I wouldn't have picked this. But there is a hope that comes with it because there is a purpose for it. There is a glory that will be produced. And in that hope, I can rejoice. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Blessing those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. This whole context demands that you're plugged into a local church serving one another in the body of Christ. Joe Hermit Christian can't live this passage out. All right. Apologies to Joe and hermits everywhere. All right. I just realized I've been using Joe Hermit Christian for years and years and years and I've never I created that expression before I knew a Joe. All right. Well, there it is. Uh, chapter 15. More hope. Verse 4. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures we might have hope. So we have a positional hope for being in Christ and an experiential hope that comes as we grow in the Word of God. Verse uh, 13 in the same context. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we should be the most hopeful believers anywhere. 1 Corinthians thirteen thirteen. now abide these three, faith, hope, love. The greatest of these is love we taught this back in the 1 Corinthians series. Abide these three. They are operational functions for every born-again believer priest. You and I should be walking by faith, not by sight. You you and I should be walking by hope, not by hopelessness. And we should be walking by love and uh, not seeking after ourselves. Faith, hope, and love. Abide these three. The greatest of these is love. But we walk in all three of these, including hope. Including hope. So if uh If we have brothers and sisters here that have lost their hope, then we need to come alongside and remind them that that living hope in which we stand is is available, and that uh, the Word of God is going to teach them what that hope is about and put their perspective where it needs to be, so they can regain the hope that they 've lost. There should be no hopeless christians okay not if you 're in bible teaching, not at all and that 's um, i don 't know it 's a tragedy when you see it happening the um my childhood pastor created that series on hoping, doping, or coping. Right? And he created it while he was in a rehab center. My pa- my childhood pastor was alcoholic and after years and years of struggling with alcoholism, it, co- it nearly cost him his marriage, it did cost him his church, he left the ministry. Um, but thankfully the deacons put him in one of the, the most high dollar rehab centers anywhere in the country and he went in there for six months and came back and um, and I tell you, uh, they they footed the bill. I'm I'm very thankful. It was it was grace all the way. Um, but while he was there, and while he was recovering and and getting off the alcohol, um, he he was in Bible study and he was putting together this series of messages on hoping, coping, and doping, <laughs> and 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 what it is we're called to do as New Testament believers, and why we don't need the drugs and the alcohol and the sex and all the other stuff that people turn to. When they're trying to cope with problems and they're trying to cope with, you know, being fallen bodies in a fallen world. And uh, no, it should be about hope. And so he spent, the, and, and the Lord, thankfully, restored his marriage, put him back in the ministry. He had seven more years with Dorothy before she died, and then he had seven years after she died of ministry uh, as a widower. And uh, all in all, about 12 years, I think, in a pulpit. After uh, losing everything. But he learned about hope. And uh, just a neat, neat thing. All right. Uh, Colossians one twenty seven. Ken Jensen. Pastor Ken Jensen. Yep. Some of you are Facebook friends with his children. <laughs> you just don't know it. All right. Anyway, if you ever encounter a Keith Jensen or a Kimberly Cole... That's his son and his daughter. They comment a lot on the Austin Bible Church postings um, on our Facebook group. All right, where am I? Colossians 127. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Notice, um, He says in verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I do share on behalf of His body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. As if Christ hasn't gone through enough, Christ continues to suffer in His body, in each one of us, in the body of Christ. And so Paul says he's holding up his share. (laughs) All right? Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, "...so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God, this mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known." And look what we get. You and I get this for being New Testament believers, for being saved after Pentecost and before the rapture. Amazing, isn't it? David didn't get this, Moses didn't get this, Daniel and the Old Testament saints. This was not their position. They could trust in the coming Messiah and receive eternal life, but they did not. They were not baptized in union with Christ. They were not made a part of the royal family of God. This is our inheritance. To whom God will to make known what is the riches of the, the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Isn't that amazing? The riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Again, positional truth, Christ is in you. You're saved. And with Christ in you, the hope of glory, what, uh, what business do we have losing, ho- losing heart and becoming hopeless in, uh, in this day and age? So we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And that's what we do. That's why you're in church this morning. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, 4, 1.3, 4.13 and 5.8 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, 4, 1.3, 4.13 and 5.8 Remember Thessalonica was like Philippi. It was a Macedonian church. It was a positive church. It was a blessing to Paul every time he visited and every time he thought about them. They were like the anti-Corinth So he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. So faith, hope, love, the greatest of these is love. And Thessalonica had them all. They had them all. They were thriving. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. And so when you're looking at these operational functions, yes, <clears throat> I get it, the greatest of these is love, but we want all three. We don't want to be so wrapped up in love that we forget about faith and hope, okay? Um, we want to walk in all three, and I think it's a good outline here, whereby uh, you see that, that uh, faith is uh, the work, uh, labor, that's the, uh, to the point of exhaustion, the kapiao, is uh, motivated by love, and then steadfastness where you just uh, bear up under all the affliction. That's done in hope. Anyway, it's a neat trinity of verses there. Um, Over to chapter 4 and verse 13. The experiential aspect on this. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Right? Right? When an unbeliever loses a loved one, what do you tell them? What are their funerals like? But when a Christian goes to be with the Lord, yes, we grieve, but not like them. <laughs> okay? Not like the hopeless. We we have the living hope. That's what we that's what we live in. Chapter 5 and verse 8. Since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. This is, a, by the way, this is an armor of readiness. This is an armor that we have all the time before, uh, before we put on the panoply, the full armor and engage in battle with the principalities and powers. Uh, when we're in our downtime in terms of uh, the, uh, the armor of readiness, this is the armor of readiness that we wear before we put on the armor of battle. Including the hope, the helmet, the hope of salvation. All right. And so this is all Paul's use. Um, we have the Hebrews use, the P, uh, the Peter use, the John use, but maybe I ought to save those for Wednesday. No, we've got two minutes. Hebrews 6.18. If you got two minutes, use them. Just talk faster. <laughs> my my uh, advice to Lewis was, slow down. <laughs> You're going to be a speaker in Spokane, slow down. Okay. Pray for Lewis and Anne. <clears throat> We're two hours ahead of them, so they haven't started yet. It's only 8.30 Pacific time. <clears throat> so I'm not going to heed my own advice of slowing down. Let's just go faster. Notice though, <clears throat> By two, so in the, in the same way, why do you start with this? Um, anyway, verse 17, in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs the, of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. If you want to get the point across loud and clear, even though you're the God who cannot lie, Go ahead and take an oath. All right, isn't that what we do? If we want to convince somebody that we're serious about it, don't we, uh, you know, don't we cross our heart and hope to die, stick a needle in our eye? Don't we take an oath? We put our hand on a Bible. I solemnly swear. All right. So help me God, we're going to take an oath. I'm testifying under oath. Meaning that if I'm lying, there's judicial consequences, there's perjury, I can go to prison, okay? And so, you know, how serious is it? Yeah, I mean, of course, if you're saved, your yes should be yes, your no should be no, just say what you're going to say. But if it's under oath, it just gets more serious, doesn't it? And so God uses that as a pattern and says, okay, I'll take an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. So it keeps us steady. We don't drift. A hope which uh, both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. All right. Anyway, if we lose this hope, we'll come back to this on, on Wednesday. If we lose this hope, we lose our stability. We lose our anchor. And the hopeless believer, what's his prayer life like? The hopeless believer, what's his priesthood like? How functional is he in the Holy of Holies when he has no hope? You'll see why this is so important. All right, Father, I thank you for this study. I pray that we would learn to be imitators of the Apostle Paul. He had an earnest expectation and hope of a future salvation. And we can have the same thing, Father, come what may. Whatever testing comes up, Father, we have earnest expectation and hope of salvation. Because we're being transformed by the Word of God, we're living the Word of God, we're going to use the Word of God in the choices that are set before us. We know that uh, Lewis and Ann are going to use the Word of God in the choices set before them. Spokane Bible Church is going to use the Word of God and the choices set before them. In all these things, Father, um, we have the earnest expectation and hope. So thank you for being faithful. Help us to understand these truths so we can live them out. For the glory of Your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.